Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. I'm Bill Faulkner, and welcome to another episode of MRI Cast. These podcasts are made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bronco Diagnostics, and we certainly do appreciate their their support. Today, uh, with me as uh, usual is Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Hello, everyone. Glad you're glad you're here. And uh, and upright and uh, <laughs> all all clear minded, right? Uh, yeah, we we don't want you napping or anything. Just no, we don't want y'all napping either. But we have a really special guest with us to, today. Uh, Doctor Takashi Yoko is a radiologist at UT Southwestern. Uh, welcome, Takashi. It's great to have you. Thank you, uh, Bill and Kristen, for inviting me. It's uh, such an honor to uh, have this opportunity. Uh, we're, we're glad you're glad you're here. Tell us just a little bit about your about your background. Uh, you know what you you know getting into MRI and, and what you've been doing and what you're doing right now. Sure, um, I got interested in radiology when I was in college. Um, I was a math major, and I learned about Fourier transform. And and how that was applied to MRI, and and I decided that that that's what I was going to do, uh, MRI research and become a radiologist and you know uh, advance MRI for for patients. So uh, I went to uh, med school, uh, did an MD PhD program at the Mount Sinai, and then um, after med school, I got uh, lucky to uh, to get into uh, UCSD San Diego. And um, um, I did uh, a year of dedicated research in um, uh, MRI lab. And uh, there, uh, my mentor was Graham Bitter, who is uh, one of the pioneers of um, uh, MRI. And uh, I also worked with Claude Serling, uh, who uh, later became um, uh, the founder of LIRADS. So I was fortunate to be trained by those, uh, those people. Um, and after uh, finishing radiology residency in San Diego, I uh, went to uh, uh, Mass General for a abdominal fellowship, and then um, then I got uh, invited to come to UT Southwestern uh, as a liver specialist, and I've been here for twelve years, and uh, currently I'm a modality chief of MRI. Wow. Well, uh, I, wish, I wish you could have put a little more effort into your uh, educational background <laughs> there. Uh, you know, not, not so much slacking off, you know. I know. The, so he's, uh, he's like Dr. Doctor. He did the uh, MD, PhD. So <laughs> we're just going to, we're going to call you Dr. Doctor. So please tell me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's kind of get let's kind of get started. We're gonna we're gonna talk about liver MRI, mm-hmm. and uh, let me just kind of I guess set the stage here and, and say you know uh, in the early days and and actually there was a, a talk I was doing the other day and it, it uh, kind of 
brought me back to this when I was looking at the topic for tonight. Um, so I got started in MR in 1985. And in 1985, 1.5 Tesla was a big freaking deal. It was like 1.5 Tesla. Man, you, you only research institutes are going to have 1.5. And back then, um, Dr. Bill Bradley, one of the pioneers yeah. in, in early days of MRI, was on a 0.35 diasonics. And uh, so 0 0.35, 0 0.6 Tesla, the Technicare, or Technoscare, as I used to call it. Anyway, <clears throat> that's what people were working on. And one of the things that they were saying uh, at the RSNAs and stuff like that, trying to talk people out of uh, going to the uh, 1.5 Tesla was saying you can't do good abdominal imaging at 1.5 Tesla, and uh, the re excuse me the reason they were saying that was because in large part it was true. Um, there were several things: uh, new technology, of course, but on low field scanners, the uh, the sequence that was the one to to look at was the T1-weighted spin echoes. Because of the lower field strength, the T1 relaxation times of liver were such that you could easily see, relatively easily see a liver lesion. And this is before the days of gadolinium. So you could see the liver lesion on the T1-weighted image. When you went to 1.5 Tesla, the T1 times lengthened, and it didn't have that good contrast. Now, 1.5 said, well, we can do T2-weighted images, but they weren't all that hot. Couldn't do T2 at low field. So, so basically, we just didn't have, a, you know, it was it was very limited uh, to do that. And then, you know, we kind of progressed. We did some of the, uh, we used to do these uh, uh, exams with a super paramagnetic iron oxide agent oh, yeah. called, uh, what was it, Faradex? Faradex, yes. The, yeah, yeah. yeah, we had you, Faradex and Tesla scan that we used at Emory. And Faradex, you um, actually, you gave it to them over a 30-minute time period that literally had like iron, um, iron oxide, you know, and it was like floating in the bottom and it was so painful. They got so much back pain. And so, you know, we used that. Um, you know, yeah, we did. It was like um, to look at the, the Cooper cells, I believe, is what it was for. Yep, yep. And, um, yeah, so it, it had T2 shortening. And then we had the Tesla scan that literally it, it wouldn't, it like, what did it, oxidize or something in the bottle before you could do anything? That was like a, a manganese, um, you know, type of, of agent. But, you know, the thing about those is they could not be used with dynamic imaging. So they, they were they were both sensitive, but they were not specific. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, that that was really the big thing. The um, Tesla scan again, you couldn't do that dynamic either. And the manganese, it didn't stay on the market very long because it had some neuro neurologic issues or something, neurotoxicity issues, and it just kind of disappeared. So well, that makes know, sense. The, <laughs> you got some yeah. neurotoxic. We don't really want that. Out yeah, there. yeah, it's it's a kind of bummer on sales. <laughs> anyway, the. Uh, you know, so the big thing that uh, has been around for many, many years is the dynamic imaging. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> the dynamic imaging, of course, is the really big part. Mm -hmm. Today, I think the dynamic imaging is the major part. I don't know, what would you say, Takashi, like 70% of the success of an exam depends on the arterial phase, if not more? Um yeah, for for certain indications, the arterial phase is the most important uh, uh, pulse sequence or like the quantum space. 
I mean, that's usually the hepatic artery, correct? I mean, that's what we have to be able to see. And you're going to miss a lesion if you don't get that arterial phase and you go into the portal vein phase. Is that correct? Right. The way I've always understood it is the liver is, of course, fed by the portal vein, about 80% of its blood supply, but most lesions are arterial fed. And so that's why it's important to get that, catch that arterial phase and uh, to see that enhancement before the venous phase comes in. So uh, Takashi, why don't, you know, thinking about that, give us your thoughts on uh, what do you like to, how do you like to see arterial phase imaging done? What do you think is a good way to do it? Um, what, yeah. you know, techniques do you do you prefer? Yeah, good, good question. So the arterial phase or uh, what, what technically what we call a late arterial phase is, is when um, a hypervascular liver lesion uh, receives the arterial input. So, so um, the, the pure angiographic phase, where like, you see the maximum enhancement of the hepatic artery, is actually mm-hmm. uh, too early because the contrast hasn't gotten into the, to the hypervascular liver lesion to, to, to let it enhance. So we want to time it in the late arterial phase. And that's when we see the hepatic arteries very well. Um, we see a little bit of contrast coming into the portal vein, but the contrast has not gone through the uh, hep- uh, hepatic veins. And that's, that's, that's what we use to assess the quality, the timing of arterial phase. And that, it lasts about 20 seconds. So if you think about the, the, how long the, the breath hold acquisition takes, that's about one breath hold, one acquisition, right? So right. It's, it's extremely important to, to time the, atri- the arterial phase acquisition to the actual arterial phase of the body. Now, of course, the, um, uh, you have to sort of time the, the respiratory instructions uh, to, to match that. So it's actually a, a pretty difficult exercise uh, for the technologists to perform. So, um, so over the years, uh, um, we have uh, utilized the bolus tracking technology, and you can watch the contrast comes in uh, comes into the heart, and uh, we detect the, the contrast in the in the uh, left ventricle, and then we start the the breath hold uh, instructions. And um, when the breath hold instructions are finished, and the patient starts breath holding, it matches up with the the arterial phase. So ideally, that's what happens. Well, I was going to ask you about that um, because the, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people just uh, over the years, we've seen a lot of stuff done very badly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, CT, <laughs> CT, for example, uh, it used to irritate me when people were doing CT of the liver and stuff, and they just blast a bunch of contrast in there, wait 40 seconds and run the scan. I'm thinking, right. You're missing liver lesions. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I have literally talked to sites where they were told, yeah, the you know we were just told that what you do is you wait. Uh, I mean, I've literally I've heard as long as thirty seconds or something like that. I'm going, you can't be doing that because you're going to miss the liver lesions because once the 
once the liver parenchyma enhances, you don't have that contrast anymore. And and it was interesting for you to say the late arterial phase, and I wrote that down. I did too. Um, I did too, because that's and, interesting that he said that, because I've just heard arterial phase, not the late arterial phase. And so catching that, I think, is even a little bit more tricky, wouldn't you say, Bill? Yeah, and that's that's why I was going to ask, how do you track it? So if I understand the way you track it, so you're using uh, a bolus tracking where you're essentially injecting um, all of the gadolinium followed by, you know, probably about 20 cc's of saline, yeah. uh, typically is what I would do. And um, and you don't really have to inject this really fast. I mean, it's typically like one and a half mLs a second, something like that, probably. Is that correct? Two ml. I would say rate. it's two mls per second. Yeah, well, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Two mls. I, okay. <laughs> Bill, you're wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. One and a half to two. One and a half to two. Anyway, so you do that. Follow it with the with the uh, saline, and so the in the bolus tracking for those of you that are not familiar with this, it's other vendors. I think G calls it fluoro triggering, something like that, where you're actually watching. And it's care bolus on Siemens. Yeah. Okay. So you're actually watching a uh, low spatial resolution scan. And, and I would think I would probably do it in a coronal phase uh, mm -hmm. if it were me. And um, you you watch it. And like you're saying, so when it hits the left ventricle and it's starting to come out of the left ventricle, that's when you breath hold the patient. And then uh, by that time, it's just right for the late arterial phase. Is that what I understood? Yeah. We actually do. We actually have them, you know, Take take a breath in, breath out, and then breathe in, and then and then that in a normal patient that should be about the the, the right timing for arterial phase. So this is a okay. perfect time to bring this in. So you're saying you do it on inspiration. So then you do I'm sorry, all I'm of sorry, your expiration. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I've always heard that everything should be done yeah. on expiration. expiration. You know, okay. Yeah. So I just, I just wanted yeah. to clarify um, to make sure, because you know, that's how, that's how I train people to do everything on expiration. And so, um, you know, for these, you know, the bolus tracking, which is what I'm most used to that and care bolus, you know, you have them breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And then that's when you, you go ahead when it's that's right. you know completely filled the, uh, the left ventricle and then you just go ahead and uh, and go ahead and push the button at that point. Yeah, <laughs> push the button. <laughs> That's the catchphrase. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a not probably it's just a joke from something that happened to us if, a few weeks ago. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, I, I'd like to give some uh, people listening a little background on the reasons why, uh, at least why my view of why expiration is preferred. Um, if you take it, uh, so most, if you think about it, you're acquiring typically uh, axial, an axial data set uh, in the breath hold. And, um, you know, you're prescribing it off of some sort of a localizer where the patient um, is probably not holding their breath. You're just doing a, a quick localizer. And uh, if a patient a couple of things about inspiration. So you tell a patient to take a deep breath in, they're going to take a deep breath in to different amounts every time they do it. It's, it's not real uniform. I mean, you think about it, you can take a real deep breath in or you take a sort of deep breath in, but when you blow your breath out, you blow it out to the same point essentially every time. You, you don't over or underdo it. You just blow it out to a comfortable point. So it's consistent. Um, 
the the patient's going to be doing their breath the same way every time. The other thing is it doesn't, if you think about it, when you take a really deep breath in, it, it changes the position of the anatomy in the abdomen and it can really, you know, push it down a lot and it, you might not get the slices that you want. And so with expiration, it's, again, it's less distortion of the anatomy and doesn't move it around. Another reason is that one of the uh, one of the techniques that's often used with uh, with liver acquisition is parallel imaging, um, and in particular uh, uh, techniques that are based on the sense technique, which was uh, invented and patented by Phillips. And GE's asset is um, a, is based on the sense technique, and. One of the things that you can have happen with parallel imaging sense techniques specifically, if you have aliasing in the anatomy, uh, you know, at the time you do the the calibration scan and stuff, you can wind up with this sense artifact. So there's there's all kinds of reasons that when you have the patient take a breath and hold it, uh, stuff moves around. I don't know, Takashi, do you have any thoughts on that? That's just my stream of consciousness for why I do it. The, um, the um, image registration between the phases are critical. Well, it's critical for CT, for both CT and MRI, but um, uh, it's particularly uh, critical for MRI as we do multiple phases. And when, when we review and interpret the images, that the lesions are on the same slice on, on all phases. That's very important. Um, it's important for, for, for us to just compare the different phases, but also for subtraction imaging. Oh, okay. absolutely. That's a really important thing. And, you know, I'm so glad you said that, Takeshi, because many people shy away from subtraction. And um, I really, in Europe, it's, it's done constantly, but I think that it's important to note that I do. Um, so, yeah, thank I you wish, for mentioning that. I wish that. subtraction imaging worked every time. Um, I do too. That, oh, yeah. that is a that's that's a major challenge in uh, in the current um, you know uh, MRI. It's something that really works well in breast imaging. It's just people yeah. shy away from it for some reason, and they should they should be using it when you don't have uniform you know fat saturation you know, and it's the only way to go. But I I think that I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, you know I I don't know if I'm steering away. I think everyone should know that we're talking about the dynamic because I call it the money scan. This is the most important thing. But Takeshi, I want to know your opinion on the delayed imaging as far as looking at F and H um, and seeing, do you think it's necessary as far as looking at um, the scarring, as far as looking at the, um, looking for F and H and the liver? Okay. I'm happy to talk about F and H in the delayed phase, uh, but I, 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 I wanted to emphasize one more thing about Oh, the sure. Phase. Absolutely. So absolutely. Please do. the timing like like we were saying, timing is extremely important, uh, and the and the reason um, is that um, uh, uh, pe people do a lot of HCC imaging, hepatocellular carcinoma, right? Uh, and that's that's one of the can cancers where imaging plays a critical role because it actually provides a definitive diagnosis of uh, of cancer without invasive biopsies. Uh, if the if the lesion satisfies certain image imaging criteria and one of the, one of the criteria is arterial phase hyper enhancement right so if there is 
uh, if we cannot evaluate arterial phase hyperenhancement, the whole diagnostic algorithm is 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 you it we can apply, right? So when we scan a patient for ACC indication and we miss the arterial phase, the whole exam is wasted, right? So it's it's yeah. very very important that that we we catch the arterial phase, and we've we've made great strides in in um, uh, in uh, catching the, the, um, the arterial phase uh, with uh, recent uh, technical development, like you know multiple arterial phase acquisitions. Uh, and now the free breathing continuous uh, acquisition techniques that we, we may, may or may not get into it later. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to let's talk about that a little bit more before we do get into because we do want to talk about hepatocellular imaging because some people sure, yeah. you know, seem, seem to be getting into that. And I, and I think you can get in the weeds sometime. I'd be interested. I'm not a doctor, nor did I sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but um, – <laughs> I think you can get in the weeds sometime with this delayed or, alter, or hepatocellular enhancement. And and to your point, in many of the lesions, it's that arterial phase that's the most critical part. It's almost like the dynamic phase on a breast MRI exam. I mean, it's like this is why you, this is why you're doing it. Yeah. And um, so. I think it's important to stress to those people listening to the podcast that this this is really not a trivial thing in terms of coming up with a good timing technique. And if you've just got a one one uh, delay fits all, like an 18, 20 second delay, you use that on everybody, you're going to miss stuff uh, because not everybody's got the same the same circulation. Yep. Um, and they also have to realize how they're filling case space and they do Honestly, Takashi, they do just pick, oh, well, 20 seconds is what we do, or 25 or 30, and then they don't even know how they're filling case space, and yeah. you know whether it's a low high profile or linear, or re- reverse linear centric, you know they, they have no idea. And so they're really missing this, art, this critical phase, and then they're missing lesions because of it. So you sharing your knowledge about this is just so critical to get it out there. So we appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Let me... Let- let me ask you that on the case space filling there, um, because there's, there are different techniques for doing these dy- dynamic acquisitions. Um, how do you, do you have a preference on how case space is filled, or is it because the scan is only you know a short scan time? Does it really not matter all that much in in the liver imaging? So I think for most uh, dynamic sequences, you can actually. Um, choose where the center, when the timing, uh, when the um, the uh, center of the case space is filled. And as, as you know, ca- center of the case space is where we... Uh, you want to start. The contrast is co- uh, encoded. So, mm-hmm. it, so the center of the case space needs to be um, timed in the middle of the arterial phase. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... The- Okay, so you you would have it if you so if you fill it linear, mm-hmm. then it's going to be basically timed in the middle yeah. of the the arterial phase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so folks, I mean, really, it's important that you look at your timing. Um, if you have these uh, bolus tracking real time imaging techniques, I think this has been you know some really good, um, really good. Uh, pointers here. Uh, but let me and, ask you a question really quick. So you okay. said you said linear, which would go from like negative 128 to positive 128. So you would start at the high order profiles. Um, it would be more like low high, 
like negative one, positive one, that would be the center of K space. Yeah, if you, if you, well, I guess it depends because you're using some Phillips terminology I am, now. So, so. Yeah, 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 it's low, yeah. it's low high when you're, when you're working on a Phillips as far as the center of K space. The center, yeah. going from center out. Yeah, okay. from center out. Yes. So I'm just, I don't know right. if a vendor, if they do it differently, I just don't want to confuse people. I know it's low high or centric filling to get those yeah. and the low order profiles to, to grab that contrast. I mean, is it called early. something? Yeah, it's early. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the the centric, or what I would call centric, um, or what Kristen is referring to is low high, meaning low order phase encodes, which is center to high order, which is the high frequencies. So that would be a centric. But Takashi, you're saying you would rather do linear, where you start with like filling water in a glass, where you start with the maximum negative. Uh, phase encoding so that by the time the the arterial phase is there, you're now filling the middle part of K space. Is I understand that correct? Well it depends on when you when you start the breath hold and when you start the sequence, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of depends on how your local practice um Okay. Right? Because yeah. you know how many how many how many uh uh, uh breath hold do you actually do Oh, well, how, how many practice breaths did you allow them allow the patients to do before you actually start the sequence and and so yeah so so there there uh, there is there needs to be a little bit of fine tuning. So do you right. you actually change it based upon the patient the way that oh, you're going to fill the space? Bolus track, right? So so that's mm -hmm. yeah. left ventricle. Then you yes. start the uh, the breath hold uh, uh, instructions. And that's that's how we do it, but oh, but okay. uh, but other other centers might do it a little bit differently. In Absolutely. which case, you have to kind of um, figure out, you know, what is the, the you know when you actually acquire the center of case space of the arterial phase. Right. So you you have to basically have to do some planning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bottom line is you really have to look at your protocol and look at doing you know doing some planning. Well, if they have an older um, scanner, there's something called like a test bolus where it's, you know, one second and you give them like two cc's, of, you know, of gadolinium followed by like 10 cc's of saline. Yeah. And then you see based upon how, you know, what you're limited to with your case base filling. And then you see when it reaches and you get the maximum intensity. Um, so I don't know. I'm sure that Takeshi, again, you were probably in like second grade when we were doing these types of techniques, but those scanners do still exist where you would have to do that. And so Bill, do you remember doing that and looking for the maximum intensity on, on doing that? And a lot of people oh, skip yeah. that portion and they just say, well, you know, typically it's 20 seconds or 30. And that's, that's where you can't be lazy. You've got to do that in order to maximize and get the correct timing based upon how you're filling case space. And I don't, you know, I don't want to beat case space to death, but it's very important to catch this late arterial phase. It's critical. Yeah. And I, I think people typically would say, well, I don't want to give them a test bolus because then that'll contaminate it. But 10 cc's of GAD is really not going to do it. Would you agree to catch it? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it's not enough. I mean, if you can't do it, if you can't do a bolus tracking or something like that, you really should consider a test bolus because then you'll know by looking at the images exactly when that arterial phase is starting. And so then you know how to time it. And the bolus tracking is not always perfect. Uh, it's, I mean, it's designed for a normal, normal patient with uh, normal cardiac function, right? Uh, but right. in patients with heart failure and very low cardiac output, the arrival of the 
the uh, contrasting left ventricle is not, it doesn't tell you how long it's going to take for the contrast to, to get to the liver, right? It's going to yeah. be delayed in, in heart failure patients. So, you know, both tracking is great, but it's not, it doesn't work all the time. Right. And it, you know, it helps you to, if, if it's slow coming out, then you just have to kind of give it a little bit, give it a few more seconds and then start the scan. So I, I just have a question before we move on, um, yeah. you know, to free breathing or something. I, this part's, this part's just so important. Do you ever do something that's just continuous dynamics, like maybe the 40 technique with the temporal resolution? We started doing that. Okay. So talk about that a little bit for us, because I know that at the children's hospital, we were definitely doing that with the pediatrics and it was very successful and it was on a semen scanner. And so, you know, can you just talk to us about that a little bit? Because then you're not going to miss that late arterial phase. It's going to be there. Yeah. So uh, there are uh, multiple um, uh, products out from uh, GE Phillips Siemens and uh, we have the most experience with the Siemens product. Um, and this is the, the stack of stars, respiratory uh, gated reconstruction with compressed sense. And, you know, when all those technologies are combined, we can actually image uh, basically a 3D fluoroscopic image every, every 10 seconds um, bef- before the contrast um, goes in. Uh, and during the injection, after the injection, and we can keep acquiring for like five minutes. So we have the entire 4D data set uh, of contrast coming in and liver, you know, arterial phase, portovenous phase, and delayed phase uh, in a sort of single sequence. And that, uh, you know, of course, that generates like 50 phases, um, uh, but but one or two of them are, are going to be correctly timed or trial mm-hmm. phase. And then, of course, you know, you can pick a port, uh, port of venous phase and delayed phase, you know, whichever you want. But um, from, from this large data set, uh, but you, you, you get a motion-free, correctly timed or trial phase every time if you use the sequence. So are you leaning more toward that these days or are you using just the bolus track? I'm, you know, I'm just out of curiosity. So in patients with uh, who can uh, breath hold, we still use the breath hold technique. Uh, so okay. back breath hold mm-hmm. technique, uh, and you can assess whether the patient's you know holding breath based on the pre-contrast sequences. Mm-hmm. So if the patient's not holding breath or not not following the directions, then then we switch to the uh, free breathing uh, protocol and then do the dynamics that way. And the the only disadvantage is is that. The image quality, you, you, you get the streak artifact from the radio acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's, personally, I don't think that bothers me that much. Um, it's more important for me to to get the arterial phase reliably every time with without motion artifacts. Well, you would rather you would rather have a little bit of a streak artifact than have a failed breath hold. Exactly. <laughs> right, cause exactly. Then, I mean, because then you've got... You know, you've got nothing, in the end, and and again, that's in the end. You know, if we if we need to come back to some of these other techniques, I, I'd kind of like to. But that that failed breath hold thing, uh, and then something Kristen was asking about, I'd like to kind of lead into it with this and talk about uh, the use of a the liver specific agent, mm-hmm. uh, which in the U.S. is Eovis, and a lot of people, um, I, at least the sites we've worked with lately have you know been talking about um 
you know, using EVIST and they're like all about it. And, but one of the things that, and in fact, it's, it's in the ACR manual on contrast media that uh, for whatever reason, uh, there is a large tendency for patients to develop transient shortness of breath uh, after a bolus injection of EVIST. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they get that shortness of breath, then they then they blow the breath hole, no pun yeah. intended. Um, and have you, is that part of what you've seen as well? Because I've, I've heard that from numerous people. Yeah, uh, I think there is, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's much controversy that it occurs. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, uh, and we have definitely experienced that. And, and that is why we uh, don't use UVIST in patient or in for indications where arteriophase is critical and i've heard uh, i've actually heard people who have actually gone back and then do a do another agent do a non-specific agent just to catch the uh, arteriophase because the arteriophase and, and actually doing there was somebody that was we were talking to um, that was doing uh, a combo they would actually do both an arteriophase yeah. with a with a, uh, a standard agent, and then they would go back and then do EVIST mm -hmm. and so they could get a patacellular phase. And, and you know, one of the things we're definitely going to be talking about here on, on this podcast is, you know, we, you know, there's a, there's a, a push afoot around for, you know, now for several years to like, don't be throwing gadolinium around like that. I mean, back in the old days, we used to inject, you know, 40 cc's for an MRA. It wouldn't work. Well, who cares? It's just gadolinium. Give them another 40. And, uh, you know, so this, you know, dosing people like that with gadolinium really is just not a lot of favor today. And, and so, uh, I don't know, to me, that just seems a little, uh, like you're doing, I don't know, you're not making, uh, doing a good enough job for the patient, I guess, to try to dose them with that much gadolinium to try to cover what you want to cover, I guess. Yeah, I think, uh, Takeshi, you would be amazed at how much gadolinium we gave when I was doing research with um, liver imaging, um, you know, in my early days. It was it was because, you know, it was, it was holy water back then. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, we really did. They're like, oh, no, just go ahead and, and push some more because, you know, they're, they, they, it's, it's all good. And so, you know, we did we did a lot. Um, I, you know, if we can just spend a little bit of time, and I said F and H, and I, I just don't think that's right. It's focal nodular hyperplasia. I should have actually, I don't like three-letter acronyms. But um, can we just talk about, like, maybe the delayed imaging a little bit and how you handle that? Um, yeah. Or do you do you think you need it very often, I guess, maybe give yeah. you know, the, the uh, patocellular phase? So um, the are you talking about the the hyper, hypercellular phase with EOVIST? Right. Yes. For yeah, for, for it, but there's two. I think there's two types of delays we've been talking about. In in routine dynamic imaging, you know, you get the arterial, then the portal yeah. uh, venous, and then there's a quote delayed phase, you know, washout phase. So not that one. It's more the hepatocellular phase. Yeah. Uh, for hepatocellular imaging to be more correct, I would guess. Yeah. Maybe the hepatobiliary phase too. I mean, it's, it's kind yeah. of what it's called. And then, you know, based upon the agent that you're using, you'll be able to see it. And But sometimes you can just see it, you know, there's like scarring um, in the F and H that you're able to, to delineate it. And is that something that, you know, how, 
I don't know, just can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, one of the, the main indication for uh, EOVIST is a differentiation or characterization of benign hepatocellular neoplasm. So usually uh, what we're talking about is the fibrinogenal hyperplasia or FNH or hepatocellular adenoma. Um, these are both benign, but FNH has no malignant potential, whereas adenoma can grow uh, and also can transform into a malignancy. So the, the, the care pathway for those two lesions are very different. On, um, on um, uh, MRI, uh, dynamic MRI with extracellular agents, both of these uh, entities can have very similar uh, appearance. So we, uh, we typically cannot differentiate one or the other uh, oh. with confidence, right? So we need, we need a very con- uh, a definitive diagnosis of FNH uh, if, it's, if it's an FNH because the patient can be discharged from the clinic and, with no follow-up. If it's the adenoma, then the patient will typically undergo the like, annual surveillance to make sure that it's not like, growing fast uh, or uh, transforming to, to malignancy. So, um, so in, in that case, EOVIS is extremely useful because, right? because if, if it has a EOVIS uh, uh, uptake, it is definitively FNH, and then we can forget about it. If it doesn't take up EOVIS, then it's most likely an adenoma, and at least the patient uh, uh, follow-up is, is warranted. Uh, and one more thing. So we were talking about the uh, hypercellular phase. We uh, also use it for a, um, a patient with cancer with, uh, where, in whom a mapping of uh, metastatic sites is important for surgical planning. So if the surgeon is, uh, is planning to go in uh, for a, a resection of, of liver metastasis, it's important to identify all of them uh, so that they can kind of pluck them out. Um, and we don't want to miss even small ones. So uh, it's very important to, to do a hepatobiliary phase with a um, high special resolution so we can tell the surgeons where to look for the metastasis with uh, um, intraoperative ultrasound. Then they can, they can you know, either ablate or uh, do a wedge resection. All right. Well, that, that's been that's very helpful. I mean, this is really good discussion on on both the importance of the arterial phase, importance also on hepatobiliary imaging, hepatobiliary phase. Um, I, I want to now talk for just a little bit about um, something that I, I wonder if it has any uh, assistance in some of this stuff or is it of help, and that's diffusion-weighted imaging. Do you use uh, diffusion-weighted imaging very much Absolutely. in uh, liver imaging? All, all the time. Yeah, and so yeah, Bill and I were talking about this earlier, so I was trying to go back. I remember we were actually sitting at a restaurant um, cheesecake factory, actually. And um, there was a paper written by um, Damian Grotten-Smith, and um, he's a, a doctor that I worked with at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And so he used um, a, you know, a 50 up to an 800 um, sensitivity factor. And when I was looking it up this afternoon, it was looking to try and figure out benign versus malignant tumors. 
Um, is there something you can speak to to that and how you differentiate and what B sensitivity values you use as far as your diffusion? What what are your, um, you know, what what you know B values do you use and why? Yeah. So in the uh, in the abdomen we use a B eight hundred. Okay. Um, that's that's our high um, uh, high B value acquisition, and uh, for the for the low B values we either use a zero B zero or B fifty, and it kind of depends on the uh, the vendor. Some vendors allow you know B B zero, uh, some vendors won't. So um, and then we just do two two acquisitions. We don't really pay attention to ADC because um, okay. uh, in the abdomen, uh, unlike brain where it's stationary, abdomen. Uh, I think I think they're both of those acquisitions are have some um, respiratory artifacts, and when you do a ADC calculations, those the the effects of um, uh, the motion artifacts just um, compound each other. And the ADC maps are not not very high quality, so we uh, do a subjective assessment of the signal intensities between the low B value and high B value. So you, but you say in the abdomen. Uh, so I mean, specific also to liver exams. I mean, for liver. Yes. Uh, yeah. For liver mats. For liver and uh, kidneys, we uh, we use uh, uh, B eight hundred. Okay. Okay. So, th so then you would just look at it and you'd say, okay, if something's uh, if something's bright on the low B value and it's bright on the high B value, then it's uh, likely T two, yeah, T yeah. two shining yeah. through. Okay, well th that's cool. So we were wondering about the the B values, and then, and I was reading an article this morning on one of the uh, actually it's one of the social media feeds yeah. uh, on MR, and they were t were talking about the vendors are coming out with. Uh, some uh, new techniques uh, for diffusion that really do help uh, reduce the susceptibility effects and then also the respiratory effects with that. Um, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about from the time, some time we got about the right time left here. Let's let's talk about uh, gadolinium-based contrast agents uh, and now in specifically talking about the agent based on gadopiclinol molecule. Mm -hmm. um, in in contrast, you know, we talked a lot about the early on about the development or in this podcast about the development of, of MR technology and that sort of thing. And then, but the whole time that MR has been developing over these, you know, 20, 30 years, the gadolinium contrast agents haven't changed all that much. Now, Multihance came along and gave us some high relaxivity and a taste of what you can do with high relaxivity. And for liver imaging, that high relaxivity could be traded in for reduced dose, right? Am I not correct? I mean, there were several papers that showed that you could do a half dose of multi-hance and get the same mm -hmm. in terms of arterial enhancement and things like that as you could with a standard uh, agent. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so there's there's benefits to that, not only that, but, you know, real good arterial imaging. Uh, but then, you know, over time, uh, you know, Everybody started moving now toward uh, macrocyclic agents, uh, pr primarily because of uh, the concerns of, of retention. But again, there's no, at this point, we've not seen anything about it. You know, the other thing that people used to be worried about was NSF, but uh, what's your view on that? I mean, our, at least the, the viewpoint I think we've got is that it's pretty much 
over with. We know not. We know how not to get it, right? Yeah, I I, I think NSF it's some it's something that does occur. It's very very rare, but we we do see uh, patients with new diagnosis of NSF. You know, um, it's been how many years since? Uh, it's been almost like ten years, uh, I think. Right. Uh, uh, microcyclic has been around. Patients are still getting NSF um, for whatever reason. So I don't I don't think the risk is is like zero, but it's very very low. I, I think what we need to be concerned with is the risk benefit ratio, right? If the, if there's right. no benefit to give gadolinium, why take the risk, even if the risk is so small? And, and and then the same argument applies to the the theoretical concern of of um, of um, gadolinium deposition, right? Yeah. No late deposits. Okay, it's probably mm-hmm. it may not be good, right? But if there's a clear clear life saving benefit of gadolinium enhanced MRI, I mean, the risk risk benefit ratio is clear. That we should give gadolinium in these patients. Well, you know, gadolinium retention has been happening since day one. Sure. Uh, you know, from the very first dose of gad. Uh, in fact, early on, they knew if you give whatever whatever you give, it doesn't all come back out. Uh, and and it's been shown to be some twenty plus times higher uh, retention in bone tissue than, than it is in, in brain. Say, for example, uh, you know, and and aside from NSF. That's really the only uh, NSF. Really, the only thing that we've we've seen mm-hmm. relative to that. But there is this push uh, and a lot of uh, interest in macrocyclics because the data shows that there is less retained with macrocyclics, and uh, at least in brain studies, animal studies, uh, rat studies, it's shown that it does seem to decrease over time as opposed to linear. Yeah. And so, and then there's other populations. I get your thoughts on this as well. So yeah, there's the risk benefit. Do I really need it? And if you're going to need it, you want the lowest risk. If, um, you know, if you've got uh, pop patient populations, that are going to get repeat studies over time. Uh, in fact, in some of your, uh, uh, communications with us, you mentioned uh, it's a radiation term we've used, but a law is low as reasonably achievable. So people are now starting also to pay attention to dose, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, patients are um, hearing from the media that the gadolinium may not, may not be good. So they're asking about the risk of, um, you know, gadolinium exposures um, when, they, when they're re- getting repeated scans. So, like these are like patients with you know uh, undergoing breast cancer screening or pancreatic cancer screening, um, they get annual dose and they're asking if it's safe. Now, our answer okay. is that that uh, there is benefit uh, to getting an MRI because you are high risk for cancer, uh, but we are doing best we can to minimize that risk. And you know, in doing and in doing that, that's or, or at least a uh, one of the newest tools we've got. And I know uh, you've got some experience with it, but quite honestly, I mean, it hasn't been out all that long. Uh, the introduction of gadapiclinol, sold as Buea by uh, by Bronco. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, th- this interesting thing about this, and many people may not realize it, this is 
maybe the first gadolinium agents that was ever introduced in uh, the USA first. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's stuff introduced in Europe. This, is, this isn't in Europe yet. So this, this came out in the U.S. And so people are excited about it, but, you know, are just learning about it. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's a macrocyclic agent. Uh, it's relaxivity or effectiveness per, for a given dose is two to three times higher than the other agents, uh, even, even multi-hands. Uh, the other thing that's exciting about it is the standard dose is 0.05 millimole per kilogram, which is half of what you would be giving someone with a regular dose. Uh, so let me ask you, Takashi, your experience, what, what experience you have with this at this point? So uh, we started using it in, in certain indications. Um, we are a little bit careful of the full, the full transition to, to uh, get a piclinol, um because it's such a, such a new agent. It, it just became available right. uh, in February, I think. Uh, in in the US, mm-hmm. um, so we're not quite not ready to commit 100, percent but we are very keen on 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 uh, a more widespread use of gadolinium. We are starting off with a uh, screening patients and in patients who are who are at the risk of NSF, so patients with the stage uh, four and five uh, kidney disease and uh, and on patients on dialysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, these right. patients are concerned about NSF, and our answer is that we minimize that risk by using half dose and the most stable gadolinium uh, chelate. So you are using it in, on the labeled dose, which is 0.05 millimole per kilogram, correct? Currently, yes. And and I'm aware of the, the opportunities of uh, using sort of the, the, the 0.1 millimole per kilo to take advantage of that high relaxivity. We, we have not explored that uh, as, as, a, as a health system. You know, one of the things about uh, using a 0.1 dose of it, um, because, uh, of the, uh, because of the, because of its effectiveness and everything, and because of the, the amount of GAD that you're giving them, if you gave them a 0.1 dose of gadapiclinol, you're still giving them no more gadolinium than you were giving them. Yeah with a standard yeah. agent, right? So yeah. they're still getting the same milligrams, if you will, of gadolinium. So, and then there's, there may be opportunity, I don't know, uh, there may be opportunity to go the other way with it uh, for certain indications, yeah. uh, you know, going a lower dose um, because the, uh, for example, a, a half dose or not half dose, I mean, it's a standard dose, but 0.05 millimole a kilogram of gadapiclinol is at least equivalent, in some cases a little better, depends on the particular uh, application is at least equivalent as a full dose of multi-hands. So anything that you would reduce the dose of multi-hands on, looks like you've got the opportunity to reduce the dose yeah. of gadapiclinol. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, w- it would make sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, on the other thing that we didn't need to mention, because we mentioned the the risk of NSF being extremely low and a highly stable agent, the uh, gadapiclinol buway is is actually listed as a group two agent. Uh, it really didn't take them but a few months to actually list it as group two. And the uh, stability measurements of gadapiclinol is five times greater than its nearest uh, competitor, which would be uh, Dotaram yeah. and Clarescan. So uh, 
extremely highly stable agent. Um, and again, do you feel like this this is going to give? I think this gives us opportunity to address everybody's concern, and at the same time, as we get used to it, learn how to work it into general practice. Your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to be better in in every category. Um, what we what I wasn't sure about are the other safety concerns, like the um, theologic reactions. Uh, and because those are so rare, right, um, <laughs> we just need the market to experience gadapiclinol to see if there's, you know, if there's any trend of, of yeah. higher, uh, higher reaction rate. And so far, by, by talking to uh, colleagues and other institutions where they started using gadapiclinol, it hasn't been um, noticeable. But right. I, think, I think the jury is still out there about other safety issues. Yeah, the you know the thing about adverse events, it, it's really so hard. It's very very hard yeah. to get a handle on it because it is so very rare. Because something happens very rare and random. Mm -hmm. Because you have three in a row doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like yeah. out of how many out of how many studies you know. Um, and the other thing though, what what's interesting, at least in the clinical trials, uh, the data was holding up is similar to other agents. The other thing that's interesting about it is, uh, although it's it's more viscous, but because of the size of the molecule, the osmolality of it, it's non-ionic. So it's a, it's a uh, macrocyclic, but non-ionic. Its osmolality is actually just a little more than Prohance, which is like 600 milliosmoles, something like that. And this is maybe 800. It's way below the osmolality of other agents. And so uh, some people seem to think that lower osmolality may help reduce physiologic mm -hmm. kind of responses. And that, that may be true. But then again, like I said, we're not giving large volumes anyway, so it's just hard to get a handle on it. So far, it's looking very promising. Well, great. Well, you know, folks, we've, I think, covered a lot of good material here uh, tonight. Uh, Krista, I want to thank you for, for joining us and appreciate your input as always. You very, know what? Thank you helpful. so much for allowing me to be on the 26th one with your 27th. So, and we have uh, 28. I can't remember. You know, we're, we're getting on up there. And, you know, we have to also have to thank that over 22,500 people that are subscribers. So make sure you keep the word going around. Takeshi, you've been fantastic. I, I really appreciate all of the great information that you provided. This late arterial phase is definitely new to me, and I, I learned a lot about it and the importance of it and, you know, different ways that we're able to obtain it. So, you know, I just I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, Absolutely, Takeshi. Thank you so much. It was fun. <laughs> Everyone says Bill and I are just a blast. Yeah. <laughs> well, it beats the heck out of a real job, right? <laughs> now, just now we always got to go back to work. So, folks, uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to listen to this yet another MRI cast. We want to thank uh, Brocco Diagnostics for their unrestricted educational grant uh, for making this possible, and thank you again to Kristen and Takashi. Uh, it's it's been wonderful. Thank you all. Have a have a everybody out there have a great rest of your day unless you have other plans we're out of here you're just going to have to get used to it see you next time all right thanks everyone thank you you've been listening to mri cast 
This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.